Hello and welcome to another episode of TPA Talks. My name is Elliot Keck and today we're joined by the broadcaster Kevin O'Sullivan and the commentator Emma Webb and we're going to be talking about woke white tool and the diversity industry that's taken over the public sector. If you're interested in these issues and you want to push back against diversity agenda in the public sector, please sign the petition on our website at taxpayersalliance.com. Now on to the show. First question I want to ask is quite a broad one, but we've had 13 years of Conservative government. Traditionally, the Conservative Party would be considered the anti-woke party. So I really want to sort of ask, I mean, how on earth did we get here? Well, I would say uh, this is one of the great uh, failings of this Tory administration, you know, right from the start, from uh, Cameron uh, and then, of course, uh, the likes of Johnson, Theresa May. What they've done is they've been asleep at the wheel while this woke culture has uh, crept up upon us and has na- and now prevails in you know every day in every way. It's all over the news agenda. People like Boris in his metropolitan elite way just shrugged his shoulders and said, "Oh, it's funny. It's ridiculous. It it is funny. Woke culture. Most of this woke nonsense is hysterically ridiculous. <laughs> but by laughing at it, we've made a massive mistake because it is also extremely pernicious and it is an attack on everything." That Britain is about. It's an attack on our traditions, our culture. Mm. Uh, it is, in fact, an extreme left-wing assault on Britain. And that's what this useless Tory government has allowed to happen. I think it's also a mix, a mixture of things. I think after Tony Blair, I think that the, particularly in, with reference to the civil service, I think that he was very successful in sort of institutionalising his own spirit. And so it created this kind of counterweight so that even when you have a Conservative government, you've still really kind of got a Labour government. Um, And we've seen anyway that the Labour Party and the Conservative Party have have almost merged. They're they're side by side, like identical twins at this point, um, with Labour mysteriously being tried to brand itself as the party of low tax and conservatives as the party of high tax. So we've ended up in this weird topsy-turvy situation. And I think part of it is also that the, the and not to go too deep into it, because I think it's actually quite complex, but I think that um, over the last 20 years, the sort of narrative that the coalition government and then the conservative government put out to do with muscular liberalism and um, the idea of British values and the idea of um, taking an interest in promoting certain values. And I think that the intention behind that was was good and it was it was about trying to preserve something within our society. But I think that um, that in trying to promote those values, they created this kind of narrative of things that are legal but harmful. And that has fed into what now we've seen when we've got this onslaught of these highly ideological activist groups who have a present in all of our a presence in all of our institutions and within the civil service. That as soon as they have applied any amount of pressure, the whole house of cards has just come crumbling mm. down, and and they have have seized ideological control of our institutions. And so I think it's a whole 
complex mess of different things, political and cultural, that have led us into this weird topsy-turvy situation where the Conservative Party, despite having so many people who have the political will on the cultural front, and we've had people in cabinet, we've had people behind the scenes, special advisors who have their hearts completely in the right place, but they're then faced with this blob and all of these quangos and all of these other um, things that that are pushing back against them being able to do anything. And then we look at it and we think, well, why is the Conservative Party so hamstrung? Why can't they do anything about any of this stuff? And I think it's because there's a lot sort of just beneath the surface that isn't immediately obvious. Why can't ministers get a grip on this despite some of their rhetoric? So, you know, TPO research found that uh, the FCDO renewed its Stonewall membership just a few months after the, for, the at the time Foreign Secretary Liz Truss said that she wanted all departments to distance themselves from it. Or in the case of the, the Home Office, you know, a t- department ran by Suella Braveman and Priti Patel over the last couple of years, they've had events that have called, for example, challenging assumptions of masculine, masculinity. So if you could just flesh out a bit more as to, you know, why even the well-intentioned and the well-meaning ministers can't get a handle on this. You do, you do have some um, some ministers mm. like Kemi Badenoch, Oliver Dowden, and speaking in the past tense for some of these people, but uh, Kemi Badnock, Oliver Dowden, Suella Braverman, who I think really do understand and really do want to deal with some of these things. Um, but I think I imagine that you have this kind of yes minister sort of environment where, where they are being hampered at every turn by all of these different mm. things that are really quite complex. And no minister ever stays in post long enough mm. to deal with those things because because our political climate doesn't give people a chance to deal with these things. And the the you know you can have all the will in the world as an individual minister, but if the overall political will of the party is not behind you, you're not going to be able to solve those problems. Mm-hmm. And so Suella Braverman has said for a long time that we need to get out of the um, the EHRC, and that's the only way to deal with uh, with the with the migrant situation. And that's an, an aspect of getting Brexit done. Uh, but she can't really re- reasonably do anything about it because every single time she's being hampered, even you know going back months and months to the border force refusing to do their job. So I think that a lot of the politicians, when you do get lucky enough to have a politician rise to the top of the party who actually does get it, they are being hamstrung mm. by lots of people who either don't want to do their jobs um, or want to try and thwart the the will of an elected yeah. politician. Yeah. To play the devil's advocate, to be the, uh, the the representative of the diversity industry just for a moment, or to try <laughs> to be, um, you know, we often say at the Taxpayers Alliance that the public sector should should follow some of the things that the private sector does. That actually many of the you know the uh, the methods and the strategies and all the rest of it that the private sector employ should be copied by the public sector. Well, you know, the diversity agenda has very much taken over a lot of the private sector as well. Certainly, big corporations use many of the same you know whether it's the training schemes or all the rest of it is there a case that if the private sector is doing it why why shouldn't the public sector well if the private sector wants to do it it's up to it you know i'm a taxpayer i haven't got nothing to do with private companies Mm -hmm. i would suggest that these private companies that pour so many millions of pounds into diversity and welfare schemes they're they're now proposing that if you're getting divorced you get an extended period of the i would suggest that they sort of started thinking about themselves and uh decided that they were not welfare charities but their companies trying to make profits there and they shouldn't be wasting loads of money on diversity but that's up to them Mm -hmm. But when it comes to Whitehall, civil servants, that's up to us, or it ought to be up to us. They are wasting fortunes on this. And when you, you you know, what is it, the the, the Ministry of Defence alone has got 
44 uh, diversity offices there's 180 across nine departments you know these and they're all earning sort of 50 60 70 80 thousand pounds mm -hmm. a year the head of diversity at the mod gets 110 thousand pounds a year uh, but we staff, don't have enough money to pay the nurses yeah, staff of 44 <laughs> that is more than a an army brigadier earns in charge of 800 soldiers yeah. the, the 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 sort of kind of breathtaking insanity of this it, it, it's just shocking uh, and yet we're trapped in this cycle of madness this wokery that is gripping everyone and the sickness if you like is the same in the civil servant as it is in the private sector and it, it, it's the scourge of corporate virtue signaling companies civil service departments you know in the mod they call the, the diversity department the um what is it um protecting the protectors Oh, as, as, it, as if some pen pusher that goes into the MOD, uh, you know, and sort of fills in forms all day is somehow protecting me. Of course, they don't go into work anyway, oh, do they? So sad. But, it, but, you know, it's just mad. And as Emma just said, you know, if you go to the NHS, they've got 800 diversity officers, many of whom are on 90,000. And you could just get rid of every single one of them and give all the money to the nurses and the ambulance drivers. Hey, two birds with one stone. But will they do that? No. What they're doing right now is advertising for a million pounds more uh, jobs in diversity, a million pounds worth of diversity jobs they are currently advertising for. So the insanity gets worse and worse and worse. And this government's not going to stick I, up. To I couldn't possibly agree more. Yeah. And I, all, I think that um, when it comes to the private sector, you would hope that the market would deal with it. Mm -hmm, sure. And you would hope that it would be a case of go woke, go broke. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, you have ESG, Environment, Social, uh, environment, social Governance, um, that is really fiddling the market so that these companies are compelled to do these things that are not in the interest of their customers, not in any way compatible with, 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 a free, with free market economics. Um, and then, as you were saying, Kevin, I completely agree. In the in the public sector, if that's taxpayer money. The market isn't going to deal with that. The only way that you can deal with that is through political pressure. Mm -hmm. And it, it's not just in with with respect to um, diversity and inclusion and all of that kind of thing. It's in so many areas of the public sector. There just does, don't seem to be any safeguards to ensure that public money is being spent efficiently. Kemi Badnock, going back to um, Kemi's campaign, in her, in her ca campaign speech, she made this point about every pound being spent as, as you would spend it as an individual. You would take care of your money and, and think carefully about where you, where you put it. Mm. Whereas um, the government just seemed to be leaking money in all sorts of directions that the, the public would absolutely not agree with. And particularly on this diversity stuff, the NHS is a perfect example of this because they are spending hundreds of thousands, um, possibly even millions yeah, on easy. diversity and inclusion. And it's the nurses and the porters and the people who are working on the front line who are suffering in, ter in terms of their own salaries and, and therefore striking. Mm -hmm. And that money is just simply not being used efficiently. So the market can't deal with that problem. That is that's yeah. not... It's not public money, it's our money. It's Go taxpayer woke, money. not broke is not an option for taxpayers. Exactly. And I think that, you know, that we're constantly being asked by workers in these sectors mm. 
in the public sector mm. to give more and more and more taxpayer money. But that taxpayer money is coming directly from the pockets of other people mm. who are also struggling. Mm, and that, frankly, in my opinion, is not a very neighbourly attitude <laughs> to have. Uh, but what we should be doing is focusing on on reforming the way that public money is being spent. But unfortunately, as Kevin was saying, so much of this money is being wasted on all of these non-jobs mm -hmm. in diversity and inclusion and all of these training programs where they bring in external contractors to tell people that they're racist and teach them about white <laughs> resentment. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's just not a good use of public money. We've literally got people dying because yeah. the NHS is isn't efficiently you know isn't working efficiently that's not because of a lack of public funding yeah. that's because that money's not being used correctly and also the thing about diversity is that, you know frankly personally i don't see the the need for these specialists working within organizations just to promote diversity and inclusivity i'm not even sure what they both mean to be honest with you but but need some training but, but yeah, yeah no i don't <laughs> i really don't um, but, you know, I'm not like, you know, it's not a bad concept. There's no harm in having a couple of diversity officers at a massive government department like the Ministry of Defence. But, but 44 yeah. with, with someone in charge on £110,000. This whole concept is out of control and it feeds into what I think a lot of people are fearing about this government now, Sunak and his administration. It's it's like they're messing around on the tiny tip of an iceberg, and this nonsense is going on under you know on their watch. Yeah, you know, and you never heard Johnson say anything about my God, we got too, too many diversity officers. You never hear Sunak talk about it, and yet it is a serious pernicious problem. And just to just to touch on this, so you know, you you mentioned. Um, We've spoken a little bit about how prevalent this is across the public sector, not just Whitehall, but but the NHS. Just to you know, bring up the Equality Act, which says that a public authority must, in the exercise of its functions, have due regard to the need to eliminate discrimination, harassment, victimisation, and any other conduct that is prohibited by or under this Act. Are public sector bodies not just following the law when they hire diversity officers and they have this, these teams, mm. or do you think that there's a way for them to you know follow those? requirements in the Equality Act without massive teams devoted to this one specific well, you, program. You, you could adhere to the Equalities Act, but I mean, by the way, I mean, you know, w when you hear those kind of clauses in the Equalities Act, you think, well, maybe we should look at the Equalities Act. Mm -hmm. It's a charter for wokery, isn't it? But uh, you can adhere to that law very easily with a, you know, a department of three in the Ministry of Defence. Uh, shall we say, in all of the uh, NHS, uh, you know, 75, 100, don't need 800, you know. So, so, so whatever the intention of the Equalities Act is, there's no doubt that the way things are going, the government is kind of taking it and running a mile with it, going way beyond mm -hmm. what is required uh, to worship at the altar of kind of all-consuming diversity and inclusivity. And by the way, I'd, I'd like one day just to find out what the hell these people do all day. <laughs> and what do they do? The what do they do? Be diverse. Answer. Be <laughs> inclusive. Go on. Be diverse. You know what I mean? What, what do, <laughs> That's be nice to other people. 
yes. The daily routine. Yeah. Can I have my hundred ten thousand, please? Something that I'd like to watch. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. If you, when you create a statutory duty, you create a whole industry around yeah. it, and yeah. so, and that's something. And that an is expensive industry. Going to, yeah, yeah, it's inevitably something that's going to balloon. It's going to create jobs, and also you have it has created a whole industry of it because you have these people who are doing gender studies degrees, and they're doing. Um, or, you know, these these something studies degrees that creates all of these th these graduates who then need to go on to find jobs and it's a bit like the Soviets sort of imp employing one person to dig a hole and the other person to fill it in <laughs> and, and, and then you just end up with monumental amounts of money being wasted uh, and you know it's <laughs> the whole thing is is well firstly is I just mm. think it's a completely false economy um, but. It's, it's it's outrageous. I mean, in terms of public money, I mean, you might as well, the money they spend on diversity, you might as well take it and put it down a hole and set fire to it. I mean, it is just literally money down the drain. It's ridiculous. Also, importantly, I think that when it comes to enforcing the or supporting the Equality Act, the implementation of the Equality Act, what you've actually seen is that you get these external contractors that come in from certain mm. organisations that I will not name, um, who then misrepresent the Equality Act, particularly mm. on things to do with sex and gender, and they misrepresent the Equality Act so that organisations, whether they're in the private sector or the public sector, then take certain steps that actually undermine the Equality yeah, Act yeah. because they're undermining sex-based rights in the name of gender-based rights, and those things are in conflict with each other. So there's no reason to believe that the rights that are laid out in the Equality Act or the sorts of things that are being taught by external contractors or even possibly by diversity officers, who knows, that those that those uh, rights are not competing. There's this, mm. The idea of intersectionality implies that having all of these different interest groups, that all of them intersect in some way that aligns with, with each other rather than us sometimes being in conflict with one another. And so actually, I think sometimes what you end up is with this situation where this industry that has been created is actually undermining the piece of legislation that created the industry in the first place. Mm. Yeah, Jacob Rees-Mogg said that um, uh, jobs in diversity and inclusivity were woke jobs uh, created by the woke for the woke. And uh, it is now, you know, the wokery is now a sort of self-fulfilling industry that is being fueled from all sides and uh, to go back to the essential point of the, why, why Sunak and his predecessors are so disastrous when it comes to this is they've never, Cameron, May, Johnson, him, never showed any resolve in standing up to this. Only two weeks ago, I think it was, uh, Rishi Sunak, yawn, yawn, announced that he was going to appoint a woke czar. <laughs> A czar who's going to stand up to all of this. Well, what I was free uh, speech czar. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, you know, that's all. Are you in the running for this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, for 110 grand a year, <laughs> you know, I, I'm open to office. But um, uh, you know, this, so this is Rishi for you. You know, a, a task force, a czar here, a task force there. But 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 over the years, the government has never showed any resolve whatsoever when it came to wokery it has buckled every single time and if you look at the universities you know routinely over the last 20 years the government the police have allowed the law to be broken on campuses when they ban people mm -hmm. from making speeches that's against the law and yet we have the government has routinely
routinely allowed it, you know, these outrageous assaults on free speech. That's actually why I th I think that the, 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 the appointment of a free speech czar is a really good idea, because it's the this appointment is part of the proposed legislation, the Higher Education Free Speech Bill, and that includes appointing this free speech czar to the office for students, giving students and faculty the ability to report to the office for students and issue fines when a university does something like that, does no platform someone mm -hmm. or infringes on their academic freedom or freedom of speech. And by appointing this free speech czar, what it does is it actually tips the balance of Hopefully, power. Yeah. In f and that's the idea, is that it would essentially tip the balance of power in favour of people because it undermines the whole purpose of, of, a, of a higher education institution if people can't express themselves yeah, freely. Yeah. So it's a sad state of affairs, but we're now in a situation where the only way to ensure that universities actually function with their intended purpose is to, to introduce a piece of legislation and appoint a free speech czar just to ensure that, that people are able to express themselves freely in those educational mm -hmm. settings. So yeah. I actually think that's necessary. I don't think that that is the same as, as this sort of penchant that politicians have for setting up task forces and reviews, even the Home Office review into, into this um, tra diversity training mm -hmm. that you know, that's just, I think, a case of kicking the can down the road and then burying yeah. a problem in the long grass um, to mix loads of metaphors together. Yeah. Whereas I do think that this piece of legislation is really important. But again, it's sort of saying earlier, one hand, you know, the Conservative Party giveth and the Conservative Party taketh away. At the same time, and, and they're actually, while we're having this conversation, um, preparing for debate on the online safety bill. The online safety bill simultaneously threatens freedom of speech. So yeah. um, it's, it swings around about. Um, one sort of final question, I suppose, before we go into a bit of a quick fire round on, um, on a few issues uh, is, you know, and one that I think we possibly find quite difficult sometimes, which is how the arts should be funded in, in, in a world where the you know, the wokes have taken over the cultural institutions because, you know, the UK does have an enormous treasure trove of cultural heritage and cultural riches that, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing to use taxpayers' money to support. But the problem is, is many of these institutions set up to, you know, defend these uh, this cultural heritage, whether it's the Tate Britain or the other different museums, then get taken over by, you know, some of the, the, the very sort of um, uh, groups that we've been talking about. So how do you fund the arts or should you fund the arts uh, in, a, in a world such as this one? Well, to, I mean, to an extent, you know, I think it's healthy that a government um, contributes to the arts. You know, the, the art of a nation is the heart of the nation, as it were. Uh, so, yeah, the government should not sort of turn its back on the arts. The art government should help wherever it can and put money into it. But uh, what, is, uh, what used to be a very healthy... Uh, a lucrative arrangement is falling apart at the seams now and that is that most of the arts were privately funded by big corporations that wanted to look nice and cultural and uh, decent and part of the community so yes of course they're sort of whitewashing their image by putting money in, you know so BP and Shell were massive contributors to the arts but now of course all these museums and galleries theatres, you know, are self-harming by pulling out of these arrangements and say, oh, well, you know, you make oil and we can't possibly be a part of you, you know, and then they can't work out why a year down the line that the uh, government arts grant isn't enough and they're having to sack everyone, you know. So, so, so again, 
th this is really uh, the, what's at fault here is the woke mindset, which, which has you know literally invaded all areas of life. So the arts are in trouble now because uh, the curators of uh, galleries, museums, theatres all want to virtue signal and say we don't take dirty money. Uh, yes, but you do go out of business. Once again, I tell you, Mob, we are so many areas trapped in a swirling mass of madness. I, I, I think it's a really difficult question and, and the Common Sense Society, the organisation I run the UK branch of, cares deeply about the arts mm. and about beauty and about these sorts of issues. I think that one thing that we do need to do is to, to try to find some way of supporting private initiatives to encourage philanthropy in the arts because actually if you look at the history of now it's the case that all of these museums are supported by the government but initially a lot of the our, our greatest museums and collections were set up by private mm. benefactors they were people who were philanthropically minded they cared about the, um, their legacy the, and, and creating an inheritance for the British people. And that was the, the, the sort of fundamental basis of, of a lot of our museums and arts institutions. So I think it, it's, it's not enough to just wait for the government to get their act together and to sort these problems out. I think if you want something done, you have to act on it and you have to, you have to try to find ways of, of creating public initiatives and facilitating um, funding for the things that matter and actually there's a kind of democratic element to that as well because the government will fund all sorts of tat and they'll fund terrible bits of public art I mean there are still endless examples of bad public art TPA website is a good place to find <laughs> those examples where whereas yeah exactly and I think if if you if you involve charity in the process of funding the arts, what you'll end up with is funding the funding of beautiful things, the things that people really do appreciate. And of course, it's important. I, I agree with Kevin. I think there is also a place for government funding. The problem is that the purse strings are now held by the same people that we, we have a problem with in all of our institutions. And you, you have this horrible situation where you see institutions like the National Trust that just refuse to do their job. They refuse to fulfill their purpose. And instead they want to turn all of these properties that are our, our, our sort of majestic inheritance into theme parks, you know, not mm. literally, but you know, that you just have to have a look at Restore Trust's work on this to see that they are not, not functioning in the way that they're supposed to be. They're not serving their purpose. Mm. The same thing with museums, that museums are supposed to be the caretakers of these treasures when actually they are themselves vandals in, in many respects, that they we can't really trust them to look after our inheritance. And same thing with, you know, recently with the Elgin marbles and, and the, the debate around that. So I think to it's, it's a very complicated issue, but to to cut it off i think there is a place for government oh, yeah. but we shouldn't wait for the government but it will never be enough the, the thing about government spending on the arts is it will never be enough yeah. as i say i think yeah. it's important that the government does contribute but the tradition and and the the reality of life means the government will never f fully fund your arts so 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 
you know, there's always been this system where the arts look for private sponsors for companies, corporations to back them up. But are now, mm -hmm. of course, these self-harming idiots who run the galleries and the museums. Uh, so they've got these very generous commercial benefactors and they spend all their time investigating them. Oh, pr brilliant. I found a link to slavery. We can dump these benefactors. Yeah. We can get rid of them yeah. and look great. Oh, our museum's gone out of business. It's the same. It's insane. It's the same ingratitude as the historical yeah, ingratitude yeah. where they'll dig through the, the, those original founders, yeah. people like Han Sloan, yeah, yeah. and they will find things that are problematic yeah. about them so that they can attack the yeah, roots yeah. of their own institutions. Even some people who say who argue that yeah. museums are themselves systemically racist yeah, there you and we go. should abolish yeah. museums. Yeah. And we have people who believe that working in museums. It's completely <laughs> wild. Um, and, and then you see the same thing taking place in, at least they're not hypocrites because they're doing it in 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 our own time as well yeah. looking for problematic aspects to their own funding and they are they're cutting cutting off their nose to spite their face yeah so just to move on to some quick fire questions about some issues that have come up in the news recently um reactions to haringey council spending over one hundred thousand pounds on renaming a street called black boy lane where do we begin i mean it's just such a it's such a perfect story because obviously it's awful um but the fact that they spent over 180,000 pounds on the consultation process and then ignored the results of the consultation went against the resident's will changed the name and then put in brackets underneath the name the original the new underneath the new name the original name so they still kept the offensive name on the sign anyway and then within hours of this being in the news you had somebody went and graffitied it there's now a, a behind it on the wall somebody's put up a new version of the street sign um and this is it's, it's a it's a again another huge waste of taxpayers money um at the expense of residents at the expense of of the public of the people who who live in Haringey myself included um and all for nothing seemingly other than to let them have a little halo polish to make themselves feel a bit better but none of the um ethnic minorities living on the street thought that it was a good idea to change the name of the street sign so this is probably i assume white council members who who are offended on behalf of an imagined right, community yeah. and 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 they're doing it to tick a box and and yeah. tell themselves that they're good people at the expense of everyone else because probably the people of Haringey could do with that £180,000 being spent on something a lot more worthwhile that would benefit the community and actually make a real difference rather than just naming one street. Haringey Council have said they've only spent about £100,000 of the full £186,000 budget. Only £100,000? Just on the record. Uh, and then that's super that's quick the fire. Uh, taxpayers' money. <laughs> super quick fire responses now. Um, what do you think of an NHS trust spending over £100,000 on a director of lived experience? On a director of lived experience. Oh yeah, this was the two. This was the two. Uh, the, there were two of lived experience czars, I think they were called, uh, and they both offered 115,000 pounds a year. And the qualification for this was, you had to have been ill, you had to have suffered illness. So that was what that was the qualification, so that you were an expert on what it was like to be ill. And for that. The cash-strapped NHS will give you £115,000 a year. Yeah. I refer you, Your Honour, to my previous reference to the swirling mass of madness that we have to exist in, in the moronic inferno of modern Britain. It's such a scam. The whole thing's a scam.
the Tate Britain putting on a drag time story hour for children? I've had a, a run in with the drag queens before over this and had quite a backlash. I think, I, I think it was you. I, I, I think, think it was probably on, your on my show. show. Yeah. I remember. Um, and yet my my view is that it was it was over bag of chips. That's the right. McCain um, advert mm. with bag of chips. That's the drag queen's name. A lot of them have much saucier names than bag of chips. Pardon, weird pun. Mm. Um, but I I think you know drag fine for adults in an adult context. Drag is, uh, in my view, an inherently sexualized form of entertainment that is just simply not suitable for children. I think there's something there's something weird about parents wanting to have drag queens read stories to their children, but there's also something weird about wanting to dress in drag and read stories to children. If you want to read stories to children, why do you have to do it in drag? Mm. It's just it's a, it seems to me to be a very strange thing. I think it's tied up in a lot of the politics around it again it's kind of instrumentalized thing um and it's obviously something that is in vogue with a lot of these cultural institutions they want to be on the bandwagon taxpayer funded institutions as well and i think it's it's very odd that there are some people who said that that those people expressing concerns about this are advocating for cancel culture because being concerned about the safeguarding of children is not cancel culture. Mm. There's there are definitely better ways of spending taxpayers' money than on yeah. dra- drag queens <laughs> giving uh, story sessions to kids. It's ridiculous. And then finally, um, the Food Standards Agency chair telling people not to bring cake into the office. Well, you know, it's just it's illiberalism gone mad. You know, this is. I think the woman who said this, she likened it to, you know, banning smoking. Secondhand smoking, yeah. Smoking in offices and smoking at home and all of that. And it's like, first of all... You can't secondhand eat cake. You can try. But but it's like, who are you? Who are you? Don't tell me how to live my life. What what possessed you to feel you have the right to tell me Mm -hmm. whether I smoke for God's sake, let alone whether or not I eat cakes or I take cakes to the office? Butt out of my life. You don't take cakes to the office. If that makes you happy, fine, but I will. And by the way, I think I'll take up smoking again just to annoy <laughs> you. You can call it nanny statery, but it, 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 and it is, but it's this culture of externalising responsibility for things. If you're in an office and someone's brought in cake for someone's birthday and you're on a diet, exercise some willpower, don't eat the cake. We should be encouraging people to take individual responsibility for their actions. Secondhand smoking is slightly different because you can't really exercise your own willpower over whether or not you're breathing in somebody else's smoke. So there's obviously no comparison to be made there. But we should be encouraging a culture of individual responsibility, but instead we're going in completely the opposite direction. And it's already always something external to ourselves that's responsible for our health, for our well-being. We see keep seeing this with um, corporations and businesses taking responsibility for things like the sleep hygiene of their workers and providing them with all of these things. And it's similar to what's going on in our institutions. There's this kind of weird mission creep where none of these companies or institutions seem to really know what they're about anymore, what their purpose is. Stick to your purpose and the thing that you're supposed to be doing. Don't try and Mm. leak into everyone's lives and treat us all like babies. It's a horrible encroachment on our freedom. And I, I personally love cake in the office. I think it's great and I like making other people fat. I think that's uh, as good of a place to end as any. So, Emma Webb and Kevin O'Sullivan, thanks very much for coming in. You're welcome. 
Thank you very much for watching and thank you very much to Kevin O'Sullivan and Emma Webb for joining us today on this episode of TPA Talks. As I said at the beginning, if you care about these issues and you want to push back against diversity agenda in the public sector, please sign the petition on our website at taxpayersalliance.com. Otherwise, we'll see you in the next episode of TPA Talks. Please like, comment and subscribe.